I'm coaching these leaders who were making the exact the same mistakes I had been making. They were showing up as this command and control style of leader subscribing to this authoritarian style of leadership, thinking that's what it took to be successful. And, and because I've been mentored by Marshall Goldsmith, I always begin by a stakeholder analysis, a 360 feedback process. So I had all of this rich data from all of these leaders, stakeholders saying, we don't trust this person. Who are they? They seem fake. And, and, and back then we were almost told that you would bring your professional self to work and keep your personal self at home, but you didn't mm. mix the two. And so that's why I named the book, The Seismic Shift. I was seeing a seismic shift in the workplace of what used to be acceptable, which was this authoritarian command and control style of leadership, which was inadvertently creating these cultures of fear. And so the employees are telling me, I, I no longer can work for a boss like that. Who is this person? So, so here I'm seeing it in the workplace. I'm seeing leaders get pushed out. Welcome to the World Class Leader Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high performance leaders share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. Uh, today, we have an amazing guest. Dr. Michelle Johnston is the Gaston Chair of Business at Loyola University, New Orleans College of Business. And Michelle is an executive coach with over 20 years of experience, and she was named to the prestigious 100 Coaches Group, which consists of the top executive coaches around the world. She has her PhD in communication from Louisiana State University and her new book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, shares what she has learned in her years as an executive coach, primarily that connection with yourself, your team, and your organization is the key to a leader's success. So Michelle, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. I'm really happy to be with you this morning. Yeah, excited. Well, the reason why I, I invited Michelle to the show, first of all, because we are colleagues. So we share the same experience and we do, of course, things differently, but we all operate in the same sphere, right? So developing leaders. And, uh, and also she is a part of this amazing 100 Coaches group uh, made by Marsha Cosmit. So that's why I invited her, but most importantly, because she has just written an incredible book. And that's the idea, talking more about our leadership is changing as we, as we speak, actually, in the organizations. But before stepping into the main topic of this episode, Michelle, would you like to tell us a bit more about you, your story, and now why you do what you do? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up in a corporate family. My father worked for General Motors and the insurance and then the finance division. So we moved around every two years. It was very much in vogue back then is when you were in corporate, we called it corporate America, right? In a corporate job like my dad was. And if you're really good at what you do, they didn't believe back then that when you got promoted, you should lead the people that you were just peers with. Yeah. And so they would then transfer you to a different market to then be a, a leader of a different group of people. So in any case, we moved around every two years. I was born in D.C. and we went to um, Baltimore, Maryland and and Memphis, Tennessee. And then he got in with the, the executive office in New York. And then, of course, if you work in um, the automobile industry in America, you have to make it through Detroit. So we ended up in Detroit. Yeah, you must be. You must be. You have to. You have to. And then Nashville, Tennessee, and Tampa, and Birmingham, Atlanta, Asheville. And then they finally retired in South Carolina. So that's right, a lot of moves as a kid. And I just, as a kid, loved it. It was exciting. I got to meet lots of new people and move to different parts of the country. And I just re remember loving seeing how different everyone was, but yet at the same time, all very much the same. So I enjoyed moving around growing up. And that really formed me because we always had dinner to, as a family every night. And my father was this the most positive person I've ever met. And, and anybody will tell you that if you met him and he's still alive today. And, um, and he knows that I talk about General Motors and he always says, Michelle, be careful. I still have a pension. <laughs> so don't rat me out. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so I had a really great experience growing up hearing every night at the dinner table about my dad's experiences leading people. So I don't really know, Andre, until later in life, how much that affected me. Right. Mm. That I, I he just was so positive and loved leading people. And so I heard that every single night of my life. And, and then because of growing up so much, I was really uh, kind of enthralled with the differences in people, but, but their personality and their communication. So I ended up going to Auburn and getting my undergraduate and master's in communication. And I was recruited by a consulting firm that got me here. And where here is, is I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana. And so I was recruited by a consulting firm in my master's program, came to this unbelievable city. Andrea, have you been to New Orleans? I've been around in the U.S., but never been in the city. It's just, I just remember coming here and thinking, I've lived all over the country. And I called my mom and dad and said, and you've kept this city from me? Are you kidding me? It just <laughs> kind of blew my mind. You know, there's music. It feels like there's music on every corner and just this joie de vivre and this incredible soul. They say it's one of our most European yes. um, cities in America. It's, it's just fantastic. And so I knew I had found my home. I knew I had found my call, not, not really calling, but what I wanted to do, which was in the consulting world. And I was 22 years old and I was like, I have found it. I'm set. And the president and vice president of the firm said, you are so young, Michelle. I'm glad you found what you love to do, but you need to get a PhD. And I went kicking and screaming up the hill to LSU to get my PhD. I had just finished my master's and writing a master's thesis. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have to do more of that. <laughs> and so I went to LSU and got my PhD. And I'm so glad that I did because because I was so very young and it certainly helped with, um, with credibility. So at a very early age, I knew I wanted to work with teams. I wanted to be an educator. And then I kind of fell into academia, to be honest with you. 
I was, um, I was working full time at the consulting firm, finishing my PhD, and I was also teaching at night. I, I look back and I don't know how much, how I had all of that energy, to be honest with you, working all day and teaching at night and working on my dissertation during the weekends. Can imagine. But one of the universities was Loyola University, New Orleans, and I was teaching business communication at night. And the dean heard about me and brought me into his office and said, I want to give you a full-time job. So this full-time academic position kind of fell into my lap. And I thought, huh, nine months a year, lecturing two days a week with the summers off, this might be a pretty good fit. So I ended up taking that job and I've, I've been an academic for 25 years um, and, and I'm an executive coach. So it all kind of works together. Wow. Interesting. So a couple of things I would like to pick you know, from, from your experience. First is, it sounds like that the family environment essentially has been your first learning, big learning opportunity about leadership, dealing with people, how to talk to people, how leading teams. And that's, I think, is, is great because you had, you know, the chance to, to stay, to spend so much time, that was your father, with someone that's worked in a corporate world, in a in, in large organization, in a big industry, especially at that time. So I'm sure that there's been incredible learning opportunity. But also, of course, I think my curiosity is, you know, moving from uh, the academics world, so university then into the private world and, and, and working with people. Of course, there are many similarities because you're still, you know, mentoring, teaching, coaching people. But did you notice a big change moving from the, the if you like, the, the, the university to working on your business? Or it's been a very simple, uh, progressing change? is an incredible question um, because that I ended up with a lot of cognitive dissonance really mm. moving between the two. I'll be honest with you because I had been primarily raised right in this consulting firm during my entire yes. 20s. And it is all about just growing and, and trying to be positive and, and trying to create these positive cultures and education. And so the education piece we had in common with academia, but when I transferred to, or made the transition to academia when I was 28 years old, and all of a sudden I'm in front of an MBA classroom and I'm in charge of, of teaching, I looked around at the academic model and what it took to be successful in that model. Mm. And of course, at that time, when, when, you're, when you're in your 20s getting your PhD, I mean, I, I kind of, let's be honest, I kind of was an achievement junkie. I, I liked accomplishing goals, right? I wanted to be successful. And so when I looked around in academia to see what success looked like, it did not look like me. I, I didn't see me in anywhere I looked. And because I really wanted to be successful, I made a big mistake and it took me years to recover. I tried to act like them. Mm. <laughs> I tried to act like the academics who, who it was very opposite of what I was experiencing in the consulting world, which was all about adult learning and you learn by doing and it's experiential and role plays and, 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 and whiteboards and markers. And, and I just remember being invigorated by that environment. And then in academia, feeling like I had to be somebody else. So for years, I would walk into the classroom and I would put on what I call the mask of perfection. And I actually write about this in my book. And I became somebody else that I thought this is what it's going to be to be successful. I've got to be totally serious all the time, lecture for hours on end, um, super strict to the students, you know, almost like a military drill sergeant. 
And that just wasn't my personality. And surprise, <laughs> surprise, when my faculty evaluations came in, the dean's like, Michelle, if you want to get tenure here at Loyola, you're going to have to work on your teaching evaluations. And I remember being in shock, Andrea, of, wait a second, but I'm doing what all of my colleagues are doing that they're telling me to do, and they're getting faculty member of the year. They're getting awarded, and, and, and yet my faculty evaluations, and it was because I wasn't authentic at all. Wow. Interesting. Uh, such an interesting story because, you know, I, I've seen many people transitioning from academics to, to the private world or actually vice versa. You know, people that have been in, in, in the business world for many years and then decide to go there. So uh, that's why I was asking this question because it's very interesting for me. Maybe, who knows, maybe in the future I will, I will face a similar challenge. What you just said, you know, lead me to, to your new book. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And what was the main reason why you decided to write that book? So the seismic shift in leadership. Once I finally realized, okay, I need to change some of my ways. If I'm going to, if I'm going to succeed, succeed in academia, I had to learn how to be me mm. in the classroom and still be effective and, and get the evaluations and get tenure. And, and I did, and I figured it out. Don't get me wrong. It took me a number of years, way longer than it should have to finally give myself permission to walk into a classroom and, and do all of the role plays and show a nurturing, supportive kind of personality. Um, and it ended up paying off and it was great. And so then when I lifted my head up after, you know, you have to publish or perish and, and I went through all the steps in academia and then felt like, oh, okay, once I got tenured, then, then I could be an executive coach and, and really dive into that world. And then all of a sudden I'm coaching these leaders who were making the exact, the same mistakes I had been making. They were showing up as this command and control style of leader subscribing to this authoritarian style of leadership, thinking that's what it took to be successful. And, and because I've been mentored by Marshall Goldsmith, I always begin by a stakeholder analysis, a 360 feedback process. So I had all of this rich data from all of these leaders, stakeholders saying, we don't trust this person. Who are they? They seem fake. And, and, and back then we were almost told that you would bring your professional self to work and keep your personal self at home, but you didn't mm. mix the two. And so that's why I named the book, The Seismic Shift. I was seeing a seismic shift in the workplace of what used to be acceptable, which was this authoritarian command and control style of leadership, which was inadvertently creating these cultures of fear. And so the employees are telling me, I, I no longer can work for a boss like that. Who is this person? So, so here I'm seeing it in the workplace. I'm seeing leaders get pushed out. And then I'm realizing that had been me. And then I just had this desire. I've got to get this message out there and help more leaders or else they're going to keep get, making the same mistakes. There's a seismic shift happening. And, and so then I, I, as a trained researcher, Andrea, I didn't just feel comfortable writing a book saying, okay, here's what I'm seeing. Control, command and control is out. It's all about connection, meaningful connection with yourself with your team, with your organization. That was, I had such clarity with that. I knew that was my thesis and I wanted to write about it, but I didn't trust myself to, to write a book just on my observations. So I went and I interviewed 18 leaders from around the world to really understand what does it mean to be connected with yourself? How do you show up as an authentic leader? What steps does it take? How 
do you mean meaningfully connect with your team, particularly in a time of disconnection? And, and now with all this remote, how do you how do you make that connection across Zoom and across Microsoft Teams? And then and then we saw with the great resignation during the pandemic, so many people were saying, I don't feel connected with my organization. I don't feel appreciated. I don't, I'm not aligned with the purpose. So I was able to go out and, and really find the data and deconstruct true connection. And, and that is what my book is about. So when you did your research, what did you notice about, about that? Because you, you said you interview 18 leaders. And I'm very curious how you select these leaders for your interview process. Uh, because, you know, I can, uh, it's easy maybe looking for people that are like us, right? So they're they are embracing the same values that they, they, they believe in connections. But maybe you interview people that are more you know, rigid, rigid leadership style, maybe they, were, they are more into the command and control. What did you notice about this interview process? You know, what did you learn? That's a, again, surprise, surprise, you ask amazing questions. Um, I just was asked this question, I did a book signing this week, Tuesday night, and, and that was a question one of the, the people there asked, they said, they had all read the book. And so we were, it was a book signing and a real discussion, like a book club. And they said, did you only include leaders in your book who had embraced connection? And mm. I said, no, not at all. I said, some of the leaders in the book probably are still command and control. I went around and found leaders at the top of their game to understand their stories of how they got there and, and their stories of connection and disconnection. One of the leaders who talked the most about disconnection was an NFL um, football coach. And he's in the book and his name is Jim Mora. And he had been an assistant coach for the New Orleans Saints, which is my football team. His father was the head coach here. That's how he began. And then he was the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, the head coach of UCLA. And then when I met him, he was on SportsCenter. Um, ESPN Sports Center is kind of a sabbatical from, from coaching, but really wanted to get back into coaching again. And so I'll tell you where he is now in a second. So he was one of the most forthright and vulnerable leaders I had because I would share a visual of my theory of connection that it starts with the foundation of connection with yourself in order you have to have that, which is what where I struggled for years. I didn't have the connection with the students because I was trying to be somebody else. I wasn't connected with myself. And so then we got to connection with his team and then connection with whatever NFL organization he was the, the coach yeah. of. And he told a story. He said, Michelle, he said, I didn't do a good job with connection early in my career. I had, an, I had real connection with myself. I knew who I was. I really felt great with my connection with my players. He goes, but my miss was at the organizational level. And he said, I'll tell you a story. I was coach of the Atlanta Falcons and we were about to be on Monday night football. So I had a, a free day, if you say, and, and ended up flying up to Seattle where I had gone to play football at the University of Washington. My best friend and, and college roommate had a podcast, had a radio show, asked me to be on it. We were laughing and having so much fun. And the last question my buddy asked me was, Jim, if the University of Washington, if the Huskies position, head coach position came open, would you take it? And he said, Michelle, I swear we were just having fun. I was kidding. I was like, oh my gosh, dream job. Absolutely. He said, by the time the wheels touched down in Atlanta, Georgia, the owners were on the telephone with me saying, buddy, I think you lost your job. You're the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. 
you have players, you have fans. How could you go on radio and tell people that there's another job that you're, that is your dream job? Mm. And he said, as you can imagine, Michelle, my heart just fell. My, 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 the owner said I needed to walk into the locker room and address my players. I thought I was fine. I walked in the locker room. I could just feel the disconnection with the team and how disappointed they were in me. He said, Michelle, when I had to go out on Monday night football and 90,000 fans, it felt like were screaming horrible things at me and had effigies. He said that I lost 30 pounds. I had to move my family. He said it was horrible, but boy, was it a lesson to me. I had lost the connection with the organization that I was representing. So the point of my sharing that story is no, these are not all leaders who are like, oh, oh yeah, definitely. Here's how you do it. These are leaders who, who have struggled as well with connection, but have figured it out. I'll give you another example. One of my best clients is here in New Orleans, Auctioner Health. And they're up, I think they're about 35,000 people now. It's a system of hospitals. And when I interviewed the CEO, Warner Thomas, I showed him my model and I said, Warner, when did you finally feel comfortable with yourself? You're the CEO of this rapidly growing healthcare system. He said, Michelle, only in the last couple of years, have I felt comfortable in my own skin enough to really give myself permission to, to lead with authenticity? He said, it's been a struggle, but here's what I've done to, to kind of get there. Juan Martin, the global president of Kind Bars, their snack bars, he said a very similar thing. He said, I wouldn't be at the helm of Kind Bars, you know, where one of my metrics every year is how many acts of kindness right? On the planet, we, we execute not just how many bars we sell. He said, I couldn't have gotten to this position unless I really reconciled this. He goes, I grew up in Spain. He said, I, in a very macho culture. So for years, I was that authoritarian leader. And finally, with an executive coach and, you know, self-awareness and all this reflection, I realized that's not the leader it's going to take to, particularly if I ever want to be the leader of kind bars, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to be a jerk boss, right? So lots of stories of just trying to figure it out. Yeah, that's amazing. I, lo I love these examples because, you know, you made me think about what's going on in my life too. And uh, there are a couple of things here and I would like to, to bring a conversation on this point. So, so for example, I'm coaching right now someone that is, is very close to, to, to becoming CEOs. But one of the reasons that uh, is not probably making as a CEO is because he didn't really build that connection with his own people and also with the peers and with other stakeholders. So he always thought, well, it's all about me. I need to deliver. I need to increase my level of performance. It's always about me. Just now is finally realizing how much is important building relationship, a meaningful connection, exactly as you explained with people around him, not just with his own team, but with his own people, because otherwise it's not even visible in the organization. And I think many people, they are, in my experience at least, when they are climbing the corporate ladder, at the beginning, they don't really much care about this connection. But as soon as they go higher and they get to a different level, they finally realize, some of them earlier, some others maybe a little bit later, but they realize it when, once they're there, because there is when they really understand the power of connection, as you explained. So I love this point. I have a question about connection. So you, you mentioned authenticity as essentially, you know, a major aha moment for leaders when they realize they need to be more authentic. But you all start with their introspection, right? So looking at yourself and see, how can I be myself, my true self in front of people? How would you suggest people to find a connection with themselves? What is maybe one thing that leaders can do in order to 
reconnect with themselves. You're absolutely right. And I, I think the first step that I had to work on and really spend time is owning your story. You know, mm. what is a significant life event that made you who you are? And when you think about significant life events from your past, a lot of times you realize that you had been hiding things in order to try to be perfect. So that mask of perfection typically is because you think that you can't show up authentically. So you put this mask on, right? Well, that's because you're, you're covering up something and, and you think that you're pulling it off, but that's where the others on your team are like, who are you? You're not real. So when Beautiful. we want you to show up as a real leader, uh, Marshall and I kind of disagree on this. As a matter of fact, we've talked about it on a podcast. He said, you can't really show up authentically. You have to figure out what the culture wants and the company wants. And, and I agree somewhat, I do. And you've got to spend time figuring out, am I embracing where I came from, my past, my strengths, who I am, so that I then can press the accelerator. I, this is the analogy I use. So if you're driving a car and you really want to drive this fast car um, in this organization, you want to push your foot on the accelerator, right? But if you're still so caught up in kind of covering up your past because you haven't owned it, you don't embrace, maybe you grew up poor, Maybe you grew up um, from a, a family that was a little dysfunctional. Maybe you had a lot of um, health issues. You know, maybe you got a, a DWI in college. Maybe you failed out. Maybe you were a dropout. Maybe you had to get your GED. There's all kinds of possibilities and we've all had struggles. But if you don't own where you came from, then in this fast car that you're trying to accelerate, you're in the rear view mirror, constantly looking like, is anybody going to see? Is anybody going to see? Your, your, your focus is more in the past and trying to kind of cover up than it is in the, in the future. And so to get to that acceleration, it's like, just own it. I'll give you an example. One of my students years ago. So, so once I re once I read all of Brene Brown's work um, and she really inspired me about how important it is to own your story, I started to have all of my students own their stories. The first two weeks of class, they had to stand up and share with the class where they're from and what significant life event made them who they are today. Powerful exercise, right? And one of my students stood up and we have a diverse student body at Loyola, which is one of the reasons I've been there for 25 years. I love it. And, and he was from a very poor town in, in Honduras. And he stood up and he said, I'm from Honduras. He said, from a very poor town. He said, that's not um, uncommon. He said, and my grandparents lived with me. That's not really uncommon. He said, but what is uncommon that I suppressed for years and was ashamed to tell anybody is that when my grandfather died, my grandmother shared my bedroom, not only my bedroom, my bed. He said, only my best friends knew that. I didn't want anybody to know. I was so embarrassed. And then I come to Loyola. I don't tell anybody that. He said, but just this last year, my grandmother died. And when I went to the funeral, I realized I would not be the person I am today if I had not had those years with her. And I wouldn't trade them for anything. And now I realize I need to own it and not run away from it. And you yeah. saw he's up on stage and you saw it still gives me chills. You saw all of a sudden his 
owning his story allowed him that the class was like, bravo, that's amazing. They immediately connected with him because he connected with himself and wasn't ashamed or running from anything. And that's then when he could push the accelerator. Yeah, I love the example because, you know, I can resonate with that. And, uh, and that lead me to maybe the most challenging question when we talk about this stuff is, and maybe that is the reason why you had a conversation with Marshall on that is showing or not showing your true self in front of people. And uh, I, I, I always say to people and, uh, you know, it's, you, you have to do it. So people, they want to know more about you. And uh, until you don't open up to them, probably they won't even open up to you. So, because I, I, you know, I hear sometimes leaders say, well, you know, I, I, yes, I have a, maybe a, a low level of trust, but you are not the first to show trust to people, to give trust to people because you are not open up. But the answer is, well, because I don't want to be perceived as a weak, as a weak leader. And I think it's, all, it's really all about that. Is show you're not showing the answer is, is it a sign of weakness? I don't believe it is. But I think that is one of the major concerns that leaders have on showing up too much about themselves. Is this really the problem, the weakness element? Yeah, so again, great question. So, and I tell my students that we go through, and all, of course, all of my clients go through this process too. And we talk about the difference of the elevator speech, knowing who you are and how you're adding value right? If you're in the elevator selling yourself or at your net, a networking event, you know, who are you and, and, and how are you different from the rest and how are you adding value, yes. right? So that's your elevator speech. The owning your story is for you. And it's, and it's, it's this real important process that you go through so that you can connect with yourself. But the owning your story is not like, like that former student is not going to be in the elevator and uh, his, you know, a leader three up from him says, oh, you know, Alejandro, tell me about yourself. Well, let me tell you about when my grandmother and I shared the same bed, right? That is not the story that you share. So these are two different um processes, right? But to get to that, who feeling really comfortable and how you're adding value, you have to first start with what were the significant life events that made you who you are today, own them, stop being ashamed, and then you can kind of take off. That's the only way I really, I hope that's making sense. It's the only way I know how to describe it. It's your story to share. And, and but it's not the story that you want. Oversharing is tough. I'm not telling people to come in and say, this is me. This is all of me. Let me tell you all about it. No, it's a process for you to go through, right? Of that, of that introspection, that self-reflection and self-awareness so that you can feel comfortable in your skin so that then you know how you add value. So then after that owning your story, then you do as many assessments as you can, right? Learning about your introversion, extroversion, your preference for how you communicate. Are you people, action, content, technology? There are so many ways that you can grow to really understand who you are and how you add value to be able to soar with your strengths. So that's what I'm talking about. And I think that's where Marshall and I differ is I'm not saying show up as an oversharer at all. You have to do a lot of this work behind the scenes so that you can show up as genuine. No, and I agree. And I agree. That's why I was asking that question because, you know, owning your story and be well with yourself and at, at peace with yourself, really, it's independent of what you're going to share with others, et cetera. That is your personal call, whether you want to do it or not. 
I do believe though that sharing more, it's, an, it's a way to build better trust and quicker trust with people, especially with, with, with your own team. But you're right, the first, the first step is exactly what you described. Uh, now talking about showing and, uh, and changing maybe the way how you lead your team, uh, clearly we can't have this conversation without talking about empathy. Do you see this something is, is changing? So leaders are working a bit more into this or not yet? Yeah, and what we're seeing is over Zoom, what I'm advocating and recommending to all the leaders that I coach and on all of these podcasts is true meaningful connection. You have to be deliberate and intentional at this point, particularly in a situation like this. So what does that mean? And, and I just had Juan Martin on my podcast that I haven't launched yet. It's, we're still recording. It's called The Seismic Shift. And, and I wanted to know. I said, okay, so basically you're not making everybody come into the office anymore. And he said, no. He said, we're, we're, we're giving a, um, a suggestion of two days a week. He said, and we've changed all of our offices. When you come in, it's no longer you can you shut the door and you go and work. Do that at home. We now, he goes, I don't even have my own office. And, and he's the global president. We come in and the days that you're in your office, not in your office, the days that you're in the office, the, the difference between your office and the office, it's for collaboration. And yes. let's let's make magic, you know. He said, but the other days when I'm on Zoom. He said, in order to have that meaningful connection, and he lifted up his coffee cup and he goes, you know, I'm a European, I love espresso. He said, my people now know for my one-on-one -on -one meetings, the first 10 minutes, we are having an espresso together. And we're, we're talking about personal things. I don't try to jump in into goals and what we want to accomplish, right? So that's my way of answering your question is how do you um, make those meaningful connections? You've got to share. And so that's what we're talking about, right? You've got to embed time. How am I going to get to know my people at a, at a more personal level? But it's on you as the leader to say, hey, let's have, you know, 10 minutes of an espresso together. And how was your weekend? And how's your kid? And how's your family? You know, we're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube, Andrea. Those, those how many, what, two and a half years now that we all spent pretty much at home with kids and dogs and UPS and spouses and, and technology not working, we all have been in each other's homes. So the old leaders who were like, this is just professional, don't show that you have kids, don't show that there's anything wrong in your, your life, you've got to show up as a professional. Yeah, you still have to show up as a professional, but we also have to accept that we're all human beings who we're all trying to figure this out and it's not perfect. And so one of the things I say is give up perfection in this environment. Technology is not going to work. There's going to be some dog barking and some kid running into the screen. And for us, we have to embrace that. We can't just say, oh, that's not professional anymore. You know, you got to say, hey, tell me about your kid. Hey, Henry, you know, even if Henry is literally barfing on, you know, the person, you know, have you ever seen that? You know, they yes. come in, I'm sick. And then, and then you're like, you are really sick. And we have to embrace that. And so that's embracing that imperfection. You know, that's, that's what this is about. That, that, that meaningful connection. It's giving up perfection and showing that I'm real. I'm a real person and making the effort to have an espresso with somebody and, and get to know them personally. Yeah, I love that. And I think one of the best 
it's not really a strategy, but it's just the best way to be a leader and human being at the same time, is starting those meetings, you know, with one very simple question is how do you feel today? Because, you know, that question about feeling is even more impactful than, you know, what's going on in your world and, you know, how is life and how is your wife or your kids? Because feeling opens already a conversation about how we feel about work in our daily life, et cetera. Because from there, you can even understand as a leader, you know, whether it's good to push with this person, whether it's, is, is it actually better to step back? And that question about feeling for me is one of the most underrated questions you can ask as a leader before any meeting. And nowadays, actually online, is even more important because you don't feel, you know, you don't see person in, um, in the real life. So you, do, you, you probably will not know how they feel just in a Zoom call, right? I tell you what, just by you saying that question out loud, Andrea, how are you feeling today? All of a sudden, I just... Ah, oh, you're right, because it shows that you care. So my exactly. my definition of connection, you know, and I need to, what I'm going to do this summer is create an assessment so that leaders know they can hand out a survey. How well are leaders connecting with their team? What does it mean to connect? And yes. it's to have meaningful connection is when your employees feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated. That's my definition, when they feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated. And just by you saying, Hey, Michelle, how are you feeling? I mean, all of a sudden I know you, you actually care about me. One of my leaders, a lot of leaders give me pushback on this, Andrea. And, and, but yet they now are like, you were right. I know now I, cause, cause you know, I coach a lot of, like you do a lot of CEOs. They're like, I've got an agenda. <laughs> I need to, you know, increase revenue by 30%. And you're making me ask, on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling? And I said, you bet I am. And so one of my leaders said, well, Michelle, we tried the, on the scale of one to 10, how are you feeling personally and professionally? And that just got stale. He said, so I just begin every meeting now, happy, crappy, how are you feeling? And, it, and we call it the happy, crappy. And that just like breaks the ice for our team meetings. And we go around and I want to hear one happy and one crappy. I want to know how you're doing. And, and he says, so, so each leader has to find a way to connect that that feels most comfortable for them. I love that. And I think every meeting should really start in the way you just described. I have a last question about the online world, because we mentioned about how building meaningful connection from the get-go, right? which is really the most important time, right? So when, when the meet, this meeting starts, especially with the teams, et cetera. But one of the things that have been... I've been working a lot with teams online, especially on a large change initiative. So you can imagine how complex could become because there are the, 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 the challenge of the project itself and then the, the challenge of getting or keeping the people engaged online for a little bit longer and be accountable and be at the same time giving you know undivided attention which is very difficult when you do online so what in your experience maybe if you want to share one or two ideas or strategy how you can really not just build this meaningful connection, but keep this meaningful connection alive when we work online with teams. Yeah, so I think the seismic shift, besides referring to the leadership style, that old command and control not really being effective yes. anymore, I think it's also applicable to how you run meetings, particularly online. So if a leader thinks that I'm going to be effective by showing up on Zoom, having an agenda, and it just being one way, the leader talking and going through the agenda, that's not going to be, that's not effective. And so I'm advocating using those break 
cap groups. You know, that's it. so if, if you need to increase your revenue by 30 percent. And so I asked my leader, so how, how are you going to do that? He goes, well, I have an incredible team in place. I said, well, what is it going to take? Well, they're going to need to collaborate. Mm-hmm. OK. And is your is your workforce remote? Yes, they're remote. So the only time you're meeting is on Zoom. Yes. OK, well, then you need to utilize those breakout groups as much as you can and build those more intimate relation connections in, you know, dyad. So I'll say, so, so begin the meeting, go around with everybody asking if you want to do a happy crappy, right. And then if you want, if you're brainstorming for disruption or ways to innovate or ways to cut costs, whatever it is, then put them in more intimate breakout groups and say, okay, spend five minutes together, come up with some ideas, and then we'll come back to the big group. So even if you as a leader feel like you're supposed to be having all the answers, giving all the answers, talking all the time, that just doesn't work anymore. You got to flip it. Now it should be 80% the group talking and 20% you talking. And and especially if you have a a big group, you got to utilize those breakout groups and create those moments of connection for sure. It's, It's a different way of, if you think about like, have you ever heard of flip the classroom? We had to flip the classroom years ago as academics, you know, don't walk in and just lead a PowerPoint presentation on the chapter of the book, tell the students to read the chapter, watch a video, come in and utilize that time together for collaboration, right? It's the same thing. We as leaders have to do the same thing. Yeah. uh, They open, we don't have time now, but, you know, open another problem that is, you know, many leaders are facing right now is running this endless meetings, seven, eight meetings per day when no one is making decisions. There are no good ideas there. There is no real collaboration. It's just really sharing and compliance. So sharing something comes from the leader and then compliant because you need to be there because the leader is there, is inviting you to the meeting. And so we, I think we got to the worst, honestly, of how we collaborate online. Great stuff so far. I just want to ask you a few, uh, few questions just to understand a bit more your personality because I think uh, the audience always loved this. The number one question is, what really did you learn across all your career? If there is one thing, what did you think you learned? Yeah, that I can't try to be somebody else and ever be successful. And I expected that. <laughs> I expected that based on the conversation we had. If there is something that you, have, that you would have done maybe different in your career, if any. Yeah, I think that transition from consulting to um, to academia was was tough, and and I, I wish I I wish I had just had enough confidence in my twenties to take everything I knew about adult learning, what I was seeing in the corporate world, and feel confident enough to bring that into the academic classroom. But instead, I like abandoned everything I knew. <laughs> And then went back to the dark ages, you know, and then it took me years to realize. So I would definitely have done that differently. Lovely. So in terms of performance, uh, you are definitely uh, a top performer. I mean, uh, just the fact that you, you know, you you had a brilliant career and then you, you know, you just wrote an amazing book. And what did you learn, you know, in your experience about performance? So in other words, what do you think should be in place to get you know, the best of your performance based on your personal experience. So other people say, okay, that's the way that I can try as well to increase my level of performance. Yeah, I thought it was just all on me. And it was about performance. It was about achievement, 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 all on me. Hmm. And realizing, well, that's not going to bring satisfaction. I, and also I was just phoning it in. Juan Martin of, of, of Kind Bars and I talked about this. He and I 
at the same points in our careers, you would look on paper and you'd say they're very successful, but we were almost just phoning it in. And what I mean by that is just doing what we thought was necessary to get to the next level without just without really focusing on beautiful connection with others. It's not all about achievement. As a matter of fact, Marshall's book that he just published, The Earned Life, his work working with his coaching, working with the top top leaders in the world, so many of them get to the top and it's lonely. And they had achieved everything, but they're not satisfied and not happy. So it's not all about achievement. It really is about beautiful relationships and how you can get the best from people. And in his book, he talks a lot about fulfillment, which I think is super important element of our own performance too. And we don't really spend too much time, I think, as we should talking and thinking and talking about our own fulfillment we just get going right Uh, all right last question so what has been for you michelle the most impactful book in your life yeah brene brown and her research on giving up perfection absolutely is the reason why i wrote this book i remember my one of my girlfriends gave it to me for my 40th birthday present the gifts of imperfection I read it and I just remember having tears in my eyes because I I recognized that I had been trying to live this this perfect life and I wasn't happy and it Mm. wasn't perfect and I wasn't me. So her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, absolutely changed my life in the best ways possible. Yeah, wonderful. And we'll put the 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 book reference into into the show notes but she's a very famous author so many people know her well fantastic michelle so where people should go to get to know a little bit more about you and your work yeah um, my website michellekjohnston.com would be great and thank you and i'd love to hear from you all for sure give us some feedback um send me an email and if you like what you hear, I'd love for you to, you know, tell me what you think about the book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Thrive in a New Era of Connection. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. Thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. And I really hope you got some valuable insights today that you can apply them in your business. As always, I love to hear your thoughts about this episode. So what you like most, but also what else you want me to cover in the future episodes. This podcast is not about me, so I want to make sure that you get what you need in order to be more successful. Drop me an email at andrea at andreapetrone.com for that, or find me on LinkedIn and mention that you listened to this episode. I'll appreciate it. And if you want to support this show, the best way is to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast, but also to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. This will make our episodes more visible so we can impact more people. And finally, go to my website, www.andreapetrone.com so you can learn more about me and my work with leaders and organizations but more importantly you can take the free assessment and get an instant score of your leadership level and compare your results with world-class leaders it really takes less than 10 minutes and by the way on the website you can also subscribe for our weekly newsletter where we summarize the insights of all our podcast episodes check there as well the previous articles All right, so thank you again for being here and I hope to see you next time. Bye for now.